Welcome to PeopleTech, the podcast of the HCM Technology Report. I'm Mark Pfeffer. And my guest today is William Tincup. He's the president and editor-at-large of Recruiting Daily, and he's also a well-known analyst, advisor, and speaker in the world of talent acquisition, HR, and technology. We're going to talk about the talent wars, DEI, and what private equity brings to the table, all on this edition of People Tech. William Tincup, thanks for joining me today. 100%. Glad to be here. Um, what's going on? in the world, HR, recruiting, HR tech, and uh, wanted to talk about three or four of those today. And, you know, one of the things that really strikes me lately is that employers say that they can't find the workers they need. But I'm also talking to a lot of workers who can't find jobs. What's the disconnect? Why is is that happening? Flexibility. I think the, uh, the thing that what we've created, what we've learned through COVID, which of course, a lot of these things were going to happen anyhow. It was just going to take another twenty years. Um, it's unfortunate that you know seven hundred thousand people had to die for us to kind of get to a place where, you know, remote work for knowledge workers isn't a foreign concept, or paying hourly employees more for what they do isn't a foreign concept. Okay, we're but we're here now, and. Uh, these are some of the silver linings that came from some some this terrible, uh, you know, thing that's still going on technically. But I think on one level, hybrid, the concept of hybrid, really at its at its at its foundation is flexibility, which, you know, I remember my mother talking about flexibility and work, you know, in the seventies and just being able to take off early for, you know, kids appointments or, you know, show up late because she was dropping kids off or something like that. And uh, the IRS actually, to their credit, did a, did a, did actually a pretty good job of being flexible, you know, back then, uh, which, which a lot of offices weren't. And uh, so I think on the knowledge worker side, I think one of the things is, is now that we've taught employees and candidates that work can be done from everywhere now they know that the air can't go back in the bottle Mm -hmm. and so flexibility becomes not uh, a foreign concept or some type of academic thing Uh, it becomes very real because candidates are now driving the conversation employees are now driving that conversation saying again if i want to work in an office and, and there's a lot of legit reasons that I would want to go to an office that I want that, that I want that flexibility. If I want to go to the office two days out of the week, I want that flexibility. So you're seeing the power shift to the employee and candidate that says, yeah, I want to work how I want to work, which is a foreign concept for most leaders to then deal with. No, you, you work the way I want you to work. So um, I think that's one thing. Now, on the hourly side, I think it just comes down to, again, we, because of the pandemic, we cut a bunch of hourly jobs and those folks got bit. They got, they got snake bit. And now with the parts of that economy coming back, they're not willing to do certain things. And so that's what you see with the no shows and the, 
ghosting or accepting a job and then not showing up and all that other stuff. So the disconnect on the hourly side to me is they have more options. And they now they're now they're looking at as they should have always and you know probably did, you know, who's gonna give me ultimately the best job? You know, this is now I have options. If Chipotle is going to give me $15 an hour and pay for my college and I'm part-time, I'll I'll choose that over the McDonald's job that pays me $15.50, but doesn't pay for my college. And, I, and so I think on one level, the disconnect between you have people out there looking for work, you have looking people out there that are looking for people, you know, candidates, et cetera. I think it is a candidate driven market on both sides, which is rare for us because usually it's, it's an hourly or it's in, you know, it's in the knowledge worker salaried. Now we're, we're to an area where it's both. And because of, you know, especially on the knowledge worker side, the world is now your playground as a candidate. You can now apply to jobs in Paris or Dubai or whatever. If you can navigate the time zones and navigate the work, uh, you can work anywhere in the world. It's also great for recruiters because now they can hire from anywhere in the world. So the complexity is just ratcheted up that I don't have to apply to the job and I live in DFW. I don't have to apply to a job in DFW. And before there were certain groups that, that that didn't apply to, mostly in the tech world. But now it's everybody. It's that person in demand gen. It's that, you know, the person that works in comp and benefits. It's, it's all the way throughout the organization on the knowledge worker side. So I, I think that the reason we see the disconnects is because the power shift in from a candidate and an employee perspective. They just want things as Burger King. They just want things the way that they want them and the way that they want them, period. And it's our job to respond to that. How much do you think of this is um, employers being too picky? Because that, that's something I hear from employers. They just, they can't find the right person out there who's got all the skills that they want. Well, first of all, um, you know, the, you know, it's, it's not about lowering your expectations. Um, I, would, I would never suggest that, but I would suggest that you rethink how you do skills development. And so finding the right person is, is first of all, it's a fruitless you know, pursuit to try and find the perfect candidate. Um, what you should be trying to do is find the candidate that best fits currently and what are you going to do to get them to be the best version of themselves in your company? So the onus is on you as a company in HR, recruiting, C-suite, learning and development, training, development skills, et cetera, to then say, yeah, we're not looking for a 100% match. Because first of all, it doesn't exist. It's not just a purple unicorn or all that other stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's just they don't exist. They probably never have existed, by the way. Like, we really want to be honest with ourselves in, in hiring that perfect candidate, I think, that's probably never existed. You know, we've always just kind of massaged it into what we think is the perfect candidate. And then, you know, Sally or John starts and, you know, then we kind of figure out, okay, well, we need to change some things. And, yeah, we, we thought they were better at this. And, you know, we adapt. Well, I think we need to push that adaptive mentality into the forefront. 
into the job description, into the actual expectations of hiring managers and recruiters and sources that say, you know what, get us to 70%. I mean, what are the most critical things, skills that are needed in this job and do they have them? If they don't have them, do they have the ability and the desire to learn the skills? And if they do, great. <laughs> so, so chasing the fountain of youth, a la the perfect candidate, is a fool's errand. Always has been, always will be. So stop. Like that's here's my best advice. Just stop and start focusing on what are we going to do to get the best version of people while they're with us? What can we do? Uh, you know, again, in onboarding and skills development and promotions and comp, what can we do to get the best out of them and help them? So, yeah, you're kind of looking at more raw material. And, uh, you know, Jane might not have all 10 of the skills that you need. But you know what? She has eight and she has the desire to, to learn the other two. Fantastic. Now, let me let me shift a little bit. <clears throat> sure. Talk about hybrid work for a minute. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can call it hybrid work. You can yeah. call it remote work. But a lot of employers want workers to come back into the office. But a lot of workers want to spend at least some time working from home. How's that all going to shake up? Well, I think companies are, we've seen it in Wall Street already. Companies are going to make big mistakes here. And a lot of it is just not knowing your audience. So, you know, this goes back to that know thy audience uh, um, thing that we all learned in, 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 in marketing and in drama. You really have to understand the people in both, both are, your, are your employees and the candidates that you want to draw in and understand what their desires and needs are. And in order to do that, you got to actually have to have conversations. You have to have surveys. You have to fo focus groups. You got to, you know, open up lines of communication to find out you know, what's important to them today, not five years ago, but today, what's important to them today. And again, I think you see some of the mistakes that get made is, again, leaders that think that they're in control and they're not in control. And I think the sooner that leaders understand that they're not in control, that actually, you know, if, again, if it's an out, if it's a, if it's an output that you're trying to reach, there's many ways to reach the output. Again, if it's Wall Street, you know, and you're managing a stock portfolio, there's many ways to do that. Having people go to a place, uh, there's legitimate reasons for that. Of course, there's you know collaboration. There's other things that you want. You know, even culturally, you just want people to be in the spot one day a week. Yeah, that's fine. But it's it's like leaders don't explain that. And I think that's the, well, the, or the disconnect between that and what the desires are from their people and candidates. Raising salary is going to get you some. But at one point, they, even that won't work. So I think it's understanding, giving your finger on the pulse of your both candidate flow and employees and understanding, like, well, how do you like to work? Like, we, it's an outcome. It's an outcome. We, we care about the outcome. And, uh, and again, we want you to be successful. You want to come in four days a week, five days a week, seven days a week. You want to work from home. Can we get to the outcome? So the conversations need to shift from leaders uh, about how do we get to outcomes? And can, you know, can we do this in a different way? 
And again, is it in line with the desires, needs, and aspirations of the people that they serve? Leaders, you know, I learned, I learned this painfully. Uh, I learned this in business school that, you know, your management team, C-suite, et cetera, all leaders, they're, they're, all they are is agents for the shareholders and the stakeholders. And in this case, we're talking about the shareholders and stakeholders being employees and candidates. They're just agents. They're, their job is to actually respond to what's going on and then plot courses. And those that do that without really understanding their audience do it at their own peril. It could work out, but why the risk when you can really just ask people and find out exactly how they like to work, create a flexible environment and say, hey, we care about the outcomes. At the end of the day, you got a $9 million sales quota. How you get to the $9 million, we're going to have a lot of different ways and you know, we'll help you. But if you want to do that in the office, you want to, you want the commute, you want to you know, do those things, you want to just be there because you like the energy. Like, like I have a lot of friends that work on Wall Street. And one of the things that they've told me that they've missed during COVID is the energy in the room. So, so like, yeah, you can do it online and yeah, you can do it from home and all that other stuff, but you're doing it by yourself. And so many of these gals and guys are driven by that energy in the room. And that's true, not just in wall street, that's true in a lot of places. That's fine. Again, like hybrid is really code for flexibility. That's all it is. It's just being opening up your mind to being flexible to the needs of your employees and your candidates and getting the best work out of them and in the way that they want to work. And if we don't do that, we run the risk of losing them, not just because they'll through attrition, they'll just quit, but they'll, they'll go, they'll go find somewhere else to work. I mean, I, I always do this bit with, you know, marriages and you know, people that cheat. Right. And a lot of people kind of think of cheating and they automatically think of sex. It's like, okay, well, that, yeah, okay, that's fine. But really cheating is about an unfulfilled need. You know, you're not around someone that's being supportive or someone that trusts you or someone that, you know, that's, that's communicative, etc. Like there's, for whatever reason, so you're not getting that what you need someone else provides that, which is the basis of cheating. In this instance with employees, if you don't provide the things that they need to fulfill them, someone else will provide that. So whether or not you want to change is not really the point. You're going to change because you're going to go through a bunch of attrition. You're going to go through a bunch of retention related issues because you just didn't do your job. You didn't listen to the people that, that are the most important assets, quote unquote, of your company. You didn't listen to them. You didn't fulfill on their needs and they went somewhere else. People always love that I, I bring it back to cheating because they're like, good God, William, where are you going with this? But it's true. It's just, it's, it's an unfulfilled need. Yes, you know, you can stigmatize it with, with sex, but really it's, it's more than that. And I think that's the way we need to look at employees and go like, if we don't do this, whatever this is for this employee, someone else will. 
and they'll, and they'll seek it out. They'll find it. Let me move to uh, the next topic. Sure. Diversity. Mm-hmm. Last year, was there was a lot of talk and, and a fair amount of movement on diversity. And there's still talk this year, but it feels like the discussion isn't as immediate as it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, George, George Floyd put a, uh, helped put a lot of pressure on companies, and it seemed like some of that error has been taken out of it. Well, and the question is, do, do employers really mean what they say when they talk about DEI? Well, uh, y- yes and no, right? So you've got a couple things at play here. We've been talking about diversity for 50 years or more, right? So this isn't a new concept. Like, and I think by and large, most people would like to live in a world where work is equitable uh, on all levels, uh, comp and gender and, and, uh, and, and race and all everything else. Like, I think most people want to work there. There has been lip service for years. What changed um, probably in the last two years from, from, you know, Me Too to Love is Love to Black Lives Matter on societal stuff is the societal pressures that are now being placed on companies to do something, which, you know, now it's now it's about budget. Now it's about actions. Now it's about transparency. It's about communication. Well, these are harder things. This isn't just lip service. Now it's not just a little, little diversity statement that you put at the bottom of your you know, job description. Uh, and you don't really give any credence to it. It's just words on a page. Now you got to live it. And I think the, one of the things that I like, at least coming out of this, is a couple things. One, the annual reports on, on, on DNI that are being produced by DNI leaders and HR leaders, where they just basically say, here's where we're at. Here are the things that we're trying. Here are the, some of the things that we failed at. You know, here's, you know, again, we're just going to be transparent. We're going to tell you what we're doing. We're going to tell you what we're attempting. We're going to tell you where we failed, where we succeeded, et cetera. But now we're going to be transparent and we're going to communicate. I think that is helpful because it takes it from lip service to some form of action because budgets have to be involved. There's got to be people, there's got to be budgets, there's got to be programs, there's got to be things that get done, which I like. I think that movement, I think the pay equity movement, much of the same is being transparent, being more commutative. I think that helps. So stated with the exact same reasons of like, okay, we're just going to be more transparent about where these inequities lie and uh, how to fix them. Okay, so I like that. And then thirdly, I think pointing to, you know, the, you know, the SEC most recent uh, kind of mandate to, you know, fork publicly traded companies to disclose people analytics data, and in particular DNI data. I think, you know, when Wall Street makes it a priority, like as they did with socks, with they, as they've done with other things historically, when they make it priority, turns out it becomes a priority. So, you know, if if we want to talk about the lip service, you and I have lived through sixty years of lip service. You know, 
I think we're getting to the edge of, yes, some of the air got taken out of, of that, but I believe that if you look at the hires of diversity leaders, the money that's going into diversity uh, programs, diversity technology, that people are trying to get to a better outcome. They might be doing it a little bit quietly. Like one of the interesting things, Mark, is that people, no one, like you can't get somebody to go on record at a company and talk about how successful they are with a, a particular program because they don't want to put themselves on a pedestal right. because they know how much other work they have to do. It's, it's fascinating on some level because they, you know, they might be really super successful with, let's say, women in leadership and they're doing just a great job. They've got a great pipeline. They do great at promotions and it really is doing well but their track record with the Latinx community is horrible. And so they're unwilling to then state, hey, we're doing great here publicly. We're doing horrible here. Like, like you know, this is, this, is just, this, this is just horrible. Great here, horrible here. Very difficult to get folks to go on record and talk about that. And again, I think some of that is just because of the... Uh, I call it the, uh, especially in Twitter, it's the, uh, the uh, false, you know, I'm shocked. You know, everyone's shocked about things. I'm shocked. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked about this. I'm shocked about that. I'm shocked that people are shocked about things. So I think some of this comes down to people don't want to put them on a pedestal because they don't want to be put on blast. And they don't want it to become kind of a thing and a new PR nightmare. So they'd rather just not talk about it. But that doesn't mean that things aren't getting done. I actually do believe things are getting done more this year than they were last year. People just aren't talking about it. That's an interesting point. Everybody always seems to have an opinion about this. Yeah, it's but the, the outrage. Going, yeah, but the fact that they don't want to talk about it is interesting in and of itself. Because no one, no one's, no one's got it all figured out, yeah. and which is true of like you know everyone, by the way. No one's got it all figured out. Uh, News at 11. Uh, that's life. But, you know, maybe at a certain point, we get to a place where people are more comfortable with being vulnerable. Because that's what you're really getting at is vulnerability, corporate vulnerability, and understanding that, yeah, we don't have it all figured out. And yeah, we are vulnerable here. But that, you know what? We'd rather be vulnerable and transparent than vulnerable and silent. Last question for you today. Sure. Big, big story this week was uh, Cornerstone on Demand. It's going private, being brought, mm -hmm. brought private by a PE firm. Yep. Um, what do you think that's going to mean to the business? Anything? Oh, yeah. I think it's great for the business. Um, when private equity get in, gets involved, first of all, they see value, but they also see, a, um, on some level, an underperforming asset. And when you have a publicly traded company, um, essentially what you've made the decision is, if we take this private, we can do things that we wouldn't be able to do if we had investors, you know, if we had publicly traded investors. Uh, and some of those things are like rebuilding the technology. So, you know, when, you know, Bullhorn's a great example of this. Um, when uh, private equity first got involved, they gave them money to buy their competitors and to rebuild their entire technology stack. 
you know, Kronos is a great example of a company that went public, went private. And, uh, and, and again, it's, it's one of those things that when they went private, they fixed stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at and saying, Cornerstone's been around for, you know, 2006, but, you know, it's not a young company. So to assume that, you know, they're the, because of the pressures of Wall Street and quarter, quarter on quarter, month on month, quarter on quarter growth, you don't get to do some of the things that you should do as a software company, like rebuild your entire technology stack rebuild all your APIs, like do all of these things that you know to you know, re, reorganize the company. You know, when you do that as a publicly traded company, it becomes a news story and all of a sudden your stock takes a hit. When you do it as a private company, nobody knows. So I actually think this is, uh, I think it's great for all the investors in Cornerstone. A, B, I think it's great for Cornerstone because, you know, I don't know the things that they need to fix. But I'm assuming that just because of the age of the company, this is a good time privately to go and fix any of the stuff. If it's leadership, if it's software, if it's marketing, if it's structural or international expansion or connection, connectivity to other applications, like they can do all that now. When you're, when you're, you know, you know this because you study Wall Street. When you're publicly traded, man, they don't care. <laughs> they, they care about, you know, EBITDA. They care about profit. They care about very, very specific and um, I would say myopic things. And that's all they care about. You know, you said your earnings were going to be this. They're this. Great. You get, you know, your, your stock doesn't get punished. But again, that, that, that kind of hamstrings leaders of these companies to not be able to do stuff that they know they need to do. You know, they know they need to read, let's say, again, I use that example that rebuilding the software from the kernel, you know, they know they need to do that. They know their softwares. And again, I'm not, not picking on cornerstone, but, but any company technology changes and, and you need to, you need to always be investing and in kind of making sure you're always up to date, right? Well, when it's publicly traded, it's harder to do because of the infatuation with short-term gain, you know, that's, and that's, that's the, the problem with publicly traded companies, in my opinion, is all they care about is short-term gain. They don't really care about the long-term play. Most, most of them. They look at, you know, what are you going to give me now? And, uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's fine, but I think PE getting involved and doing what they do and then taking it uh, private, I think is actually a good thing. You know, PE firms have this reputation for taking control of a company and then pulling it apart. Mm-hmm. You think there's a danger of that here? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, usually those are the LBOs that, that, that are the ones that really do that is, is it's the uh, Gordon Geckos of the world that come in and, and see a piece of meat, you know, a piece, you know, there's a, here's a cow. They just, you know, and they cut it up into pieces and sell it off. Private equity can do that. I've seen that done, but by and large, they see value in you know, there might be a pairing off, you know, they might see uh, an acquisition that, that uh, Cornerstone's done and said, you know, work pop, 
is an investment and an acquisition that they did and say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to peel work, 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 pop off and spin that out as a separate entity and, and, or sell that to someone else. That's fine. Like that, that's just a part of the, you know, that's a part of, I think the, the ecosystem. And I think that's just a, oh, a smart way of looking at the, the, again, the, the future of what Cornerstone will be. If some of those things don't make sense, maybe they made sense at a point, but they don't make sense now. Maybe they want to go again, much easier as a privately held company than public. Maybe they strategically say, Hey, we want to focus on more global business. So a lot of this SMB stuff, this, this uh, 5,000 employees and below, it's actually, it's actually, it's really choking us down. Mm-hmm. So we're going to figure out a way to sell that part of the business off or partner with somebody that then can take that to over so that we can focus on global expansion and just global businesses. We want to, we want to deal with just companies over 150,000 employees and in, in over a hundred companies. And again, as a private company, it's easier to do that because you can set the strategy and then just go do it. And, uh, and when the public contributed company, you got to talk, you got to kind of set the expectation, you know, we might succeed, we might fail earnings and all, all people, you know, again, I'm picking on wall street in a way, all they care about is the numbers. They don't, they don't care about all that other subtext, uh, you know, whatever. How was your profit? <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, what was revenue? You said it was going to be this. It's this. That's all they care about. And again, that's their job to care about those things. But uh, to me, I love it when companies in our space go private because it's usually what it means in our space is that there's an investment that's being made into making that company better. William, thanks for being here taking sure. all your time and uh, I hope you'll come back. Well, I will. Okay. Absolutely. Happy to. And this was fun. This was good stuff. Good questions. Thank you. I've been talking with William Tinkup, industry analyst and president and editor at large for Recruiting Daily. And this has been People Tech, the podcast of the HCM Technology Report was a publication of Recruiting Daily. PeopleTech is also part of Evergreen Podcasts. To see all of their programs, visit www.evergreenpodcasts.com. And to keep up with HR technology, visit the HCM Technology Report every day. We're the most trusted source of news in the HR tech industry. Find us at www.hcmtechnologyreport.com. I'm Mark Pfeffer. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. 
I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.